Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We're both writers and have set up this podcast so that we can share the stories we write with you. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks. It really helps. In our last episode, we found out that Joe had worked missing children before being transferred to homicide during his time as a detective in the city. The APB from the Lancaster Sheriff, along with a call from Judith Dalton's mother, stirred up old, disturbing memories from Joe's past. After speaking with Judith Dalton's parents about their missing daughter and receiving a list of her friends, Joe ordered his deputies to begin a search of the town for Judith while he went to speak with Christy Kittredge. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yardwork, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. Joe drove down the narrow road toward the Kittredge house. There were no street lamps, just his vehicle's headlights. As he followed the twisting road, a brightly lit house appeared on his right. He slowed his vehicle and pulled into the driveway behind a pickup truck and an all-wheel drive station wagon. The Kittredges were home. Joe knocked on the front door and waited. A moment later, the door opened, revealing a blonde-haired little girl. Are your parents home? Dad, Mom, it's for you. It's the sheriff. Joe could see Roy Kittredge step into view. Go get your pajamas on, Chrissy. It's past your bedtime. Oh, Daddy, can't I stay up just a few more minutes, please? Chrissy wheedled. Do as I say, young lady, he replied. Chrissy looked up at Joe for an instant, dropped her eyes, and walked into the next room. Joe sensed that Chrissy knew more than she had told her parents. Sheriff, won't you come in? Mr. Kittredge said as he opened the door wider and stood aside so Joe could enter. Mrs. Kittredge joined them. Thank you, Mr. Kittredge, Joe replied. Good evening, Mrs. Kittredge. How's Tudor holding up? Mrs. Kittredge asked. As well as can be expected, she's pretty shaken up. I'd like to speak with Chrissy if I could. Chrissy, Mrs. Kittredge replied, a sudden note of concern in her voice. I've already asked Chrissy about what happened. When Tudor called to see if Judith was here, I asked Chrissy, and she said Judith was here planning her birthday party with her until four o'clock. Then Judith said she had to go home to do her chores and her homework. And that was around four? Yes. Joe nodded. 
I'd still like to ask Chrissy some questions, if you don't mind. Of course, Mr. Kittredge replied. Terry, ask Chrissy to come in here. Joe watched as Mrs. Kittredge stepped into the next room. He heard Mrs. Kittredge's soft voice, but couldn't distinguish what she was saying. A moment later, she reappeared. Chrissy was with her, clinging to her mother's arm. The sheriff just wants to ask you some questions, Chrissy. I want you to tell him everything you know. Understand? Mrs. Kittredge said, looking down at her young daughter. That means everything, and we want the truth. It's very important that you tell the sheriff the truth, young lady, Mr. Kittredge added. Yes, Daddy. Chrissy, you and Judith were planning your birthday party this afternoon? Joe asked. Yes. Was it dark when she left, or was it getting dark when she left? It was getting pretty dark. Was it cold? Oh, yeah, it was. I gave her my pumpkin orange scarf to wear. Chrissy, you never told us that, Mrs. Kittredge said. Please, Mrs. Kittredge, Joe replied, and then continued. Chrissy, it doesn't get pretty dark at four, not this time of year, but it does get pretty dark later than four. Chrissy looked up at Joe. She hesitated for a few moments, looked down thoughtfully at the floor, and then looked back up at Joe. Well, she told me not to tell. She said she'd get in trouble, and then she wouldn't be able to come to my party. Young lady, Mr. Kittredge exclaimed. Please, Mr. Kittredge, Joe urged. Chrissy, this is very important. Do you know what time it was when Judith left? Joe asked calmly. Yes, it was about 4.45. When Judith left your house, do you know what direction she went? Joe asked. Chrissy looked up at her father and then down at the floor again. Is she going to get in trouble? Is she going to be able to come to my party? Young lady, you may not have a party, Mr. Kittredge began. Mr. Kittredge, please don't, Joe interjected. Chrissy, it's very important. I'm trying to find Judith. But I thought she was at home, the little girl replied in surprise. No, Chrissy, she's not at home and her parents are very worried. I need to have you tell me exactly what direction she went when she left your house, Joe said. Chrissy looked up at Joe. There were tears in her eyes. I told her to wait for Mom so she could drive her home, but she said she would get there too late, and her mother and father would be angry. I thought she was going to take the road, but I watched her from the window. She climbed the bank and went down the path through the woods toward the playground. Her father told us not to go there because of those koi dogs. Why didn't you tell us that before? Mrs. Kittredge asked. You could have saved everyone a lot of time. Because you didn't ask me, Chrissy replied. Mrs. Kittredge slapped her hands on her own thighs in frustration and shook her head. Joe glanced at his watch. It was 8.30. She'd been missing for almost four hours. Where was she? Is there anything else that you can tell me, Chrissy? No. He looked at the little girl. Thank you, Chrissy. She's not going to get into trouble, is she? Chrissy asked. I don't want her to miss my party. She won't get into trouble, Chrissy. You did the right thing, Joe replied. Chrissy, I want you to go get into your pajamas. I'll be up in just a minute to tuck you in. Okay, Mom.
Mr. and Mrs. Kittredge waited until their daughter had left. What do you think happened to her, Sheriff? Mr. Kittredge asked. My God, Tudor must be beside herself with worry, Terry said, keeping her voice low. The kids around here play up there all the time. I can't imagine her getting lost in those woods. But it was dark. She could have fallen down, hurt herself, maybe even broken her leg, Mr. Kittredge said. She could be up there in those woods right now, cold, hurt, and bleeding, crying for her mother, Mrs. Kittredge added. Roy, we have to do something. Sheriff, I can make a couple of phone calls and get about a dozen or so men out here within a half hour. Lord knows I'd want them to help me if I thought my little girl was out there. There were 20 men outside the Kittredge house, mostly neighbors, including Joe and his six deputies. He had had Eve contact Bill to tell him to forget making the calls. He needed him to help with the search. The Carnham brothers were there, Douglas and Donnie. They had brought their hounds with them and were busy letting the dog sniff a piece of Judith Dalton's clothing. Joe had divided the men into two groups. The search would encompass the 30 acres between the Kittredge house and the Dalton house a half mile away. Barry Benoit, one of the last men to arrive, who had for the last 10 years taken the largest bucks in the county and had mounted in his study three heads from the largest male black bear taken in the last two decades, called out, Sheriff, 30 acres is a lot of land for 20 men to cover in the dark. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack, blindfolded. Barry, I know it's not going to be easy, but we have to try. The temperature's dropping and we can't wait until morning. An angry female voice from the Kittredge's front porch cried out, If it was your daughter, you'd want them to look for her, Barry Benoit, no matter how dark or cold it was. The group of men turned and saw Mrs. Dalton standing on the porch. Mrs. Kittredge was trying to hold her as she pushed forward. Joe could see her face under the harsh porch light. There were tears running down her cheeks, but her face had become a mask of indignant anger. Mrs. Dalton shrugged off Mrs. Kittredge's arms and pushed forward. You act like she's already dead. You seem to think we have all the time in the world. That's my baby out there, my little girl. Mrs. Dalton screamed hysterically. Oh, God, you've got to help us find her. She cried and began to sob uncontrollably. Barry Benoit and most of the other men dropped their heads. Barry kicked at the gravel in the driveway with the toe of his heavy leather boot, grimaced and shook his head. Barry looked up, glanced at Mrs. Dalton, and then turned to Joe. You're right. You're right. Go ahead, Sheriff. Tell us what you want us to do. Joe glanced up at the house. His eyes found a light that should have been out, like the other darkened rooms on the second floor. Chrissy Kittredge was standing at the window, peering down at them. Joe didn't like the feeling he was getting. It was familiar. The feeling was just like the feeling he got just before he found little Andrea Strait. Chrissy Kittredge saw Judith climb the bank and go down the path into the woods. I think it's fair to assume that Judith was headed toward the playground and home. The Carnum's dogs that had been working the perimeter began to bark. Douglas Carnum said, I think they have her scent. I want everyone to turn on your flashlights. Look under logs and bushes, any place that you think a child could curl up to stay warm. She might have fallen asleep or be unconscious, so you can't just call her name. You have to look and look hard. If you find her, blow your whistle, Joe said in a loud voice. 
circular beams of light lashed out against the cruel, moonless November night as the search party left the Kittredge yard, crossed the narrow road, climbed the bank, and followed the hounds into the dark woods. Hunter Langtree's house was situated eight miles outside of town, not far from one of the access roads that wound its way into the National Forest. Three heavy thuds on the side door awakened Hunter from a deep sleep. She cautiously slipped out of bed and peered out the window into the black night. She glanced up the road. She had noticed over the past few weeks a pickup truck parked up the road from her house. It seemed to be parking closer to her house each night. A few nights ago, the pickup's cab light came on, and she could almost make out who was sitting in the truck. But tonight, the mysterious truck wasn't there. She looked down. Below, she could see a pickup parked crooked, straddling the lawn in the dirt driveway. She took a deep breath and smiled to herself because she had an idea who it might be. Her plan seemed to be working. She tilted her head and craned her neck to get a better look. She closed her eyes and then opened them and refocused. God damn it, it's Greg. She stepped away from the window, disappointed and frustrated. She heard two heavier thuds against the side door. Shit, he's probably so drunk he can't see. He promised me he wouldn't drink like that anymore, she said as she shoved her feet angrily into her house shoes. She snatched a flannel shirt off of the bedpost and threw it on over her nightgown to ward off the chill. Halfway down the wooden staircase, she heard the sound of glass breaking in the kitchen. She ran toward the kitchen and flipped on the light just in time to see a blood-smeared hand slip through the broken light in the door and turn the lock. A blast of cold air swept over her as the kitchen door flew open. She stood there in shock, her mouth open, her eyes wide. For a few seconds, she didn't recognize him. He had streaks of blood on his face. There was blood in his hair, on his clothes, and his hands. The only parts of him that she could truly identify in those few brief moments were his piercing china-blue eyes. He staggered and pushed past her. She didn't smell the odor of alcohol. Blood from his clothes smeared against her flannel shirt and nightgown. Greg, what happened? Were you in an accident? He didn't respond. She realized that the concern in her voice was lost on him. He stood in the small alcove between the kitchen and the living room, looking back and forth, rubbing his head with one hand, spreading the blood through his flaming red hair, making it look darker, making him look more sinister. Greg, answer me! But he didn't answer. He stumbled back into the kitchen, opened the fridge and pulled out a beer, twisting the cap off. He said through a thick slur, not sounding at all like himself, I jacked a deer. She stared at him. Or at least I think I did, and laughed as though this were some kind of private joke. God damn it, Greg. You've been taking that shit again, haven't you? You promised me you wouldn't do that anymore. You know what those pills do to you. You can't remember what you've done. You could have killed someone and you wouldn't even know it. I hate it when you're this way. You think I have nothing better to do than walk behind you and clean up your mess. You broke the fucking window pane in the door. Now I've got glass all over the place and I've got to... Shit, you're really pissing me off, she said, closing the kitchen door and turning the lock. Hunter got the broom and began to sweep up the glass. She opened the kitchen pantry, rummaging around until she found a roll of duct tape, 
a piece of cardboard, a pair of scissors, and cut the cardboard into a small square, placing it into the wooden frame where the pane had been, securing it with a gray tape. You're going to fix this fucking window as soon as you wake up tomorrow morning. Do you understand me, Greg? She squatted down and finished sweeping the broken shards of glass up onto the remnant of cardboard. She walked over to the wastebasket and was about to dump it when she heard the sound of water splashing on the wooden kitchen floor. She turned around just in time to see Greg shiver a little bit. She hastily threw the cardboard and glass into the wastebasket and quickly walked around the kitchen table. Still holding the beer bottle by its neck, Greg stood just in front of the kitchen sink and finished urinating on the floor. Oh my God, what the hell do you think you're doing? Greg, you're pissing on the floor, she said in disgust. Greg lifted the bottle of beer, swallowed deeply, and dropped it empty to the floor. You son of a bitch, what's the matter with you? She shrieked, hitting him with the broom. What are you, an animal? She swung at him again with the broom, but this time it wasn't like the first swing. This time it was bolstered by a growing anger, not just for urinating on the floor. It was for breaking the window, returning home high, for getting himself fired, for not being the man who had been watching her house, the man in the pickup, and for being a stupid ass. The broom landed hard against his back, making him stagger. Greg spun and pulled his hunting knife from its sheath and raised it toward her. There was still blood on the blade. Even under the incandescent bulb, the blade shimmered. What are you going to do? Are you going to kill me too, Greg? Do you think you're still out there jacking a deer? She stared into his china blue eyes. They looked as if they were devoid of all humanity. The boyish grin that had once attracted her to him now seemed sinister, evil. He took a step forward. She backed up quickly. For a moment, she thought he was really going to do it, but instead, he plunged the knife into the countertop, still staring at her, his eyes challenging her. He began to undress right there in the middle of the kitchen, letting his bloody clothes fall to the wooden floor, then staggered into the bathroom and slammed the door. She could hear him throwing up. Then the shower came on. Shaking from her experience, she walked into the living room. Mechanically, she opened the cast iron door to the wood stove, stirred the embers, and shoved in two large pieces of maple. Deftly adjusting the damper, she waited a few minutes for the wood inside to begin to crackle. I've never seen that look in Greg's eyes before, at least not directed toward me. And he's never pulled a knife on me. That stupid son of a bitch could have killed me and wouldn't have known it. Her eyes began to well up with water. Controlling a man was easier if you didn't love him. And she hadn't loved Greg. He was just there as a buffer against the loneliness. After all, it was Bill she really loved and wanted. Greg was just a pawn to make the man she really loved jealous, to make him so crazy that he would finally leave his wife and marry her. Somewhere along the way, though, she had let down her guard, grown closer to Greg than she had planned, almost forgotten why he was there. She was even beginning to think that she could fall in love with Greg. But tonight changed all of that. How could she have been such a fool? How could she have lost sight of her own plans for her future? Greg was never supposed to be part of her life. If she were truthful with herself, she would have to admit that the only reason she had connected with Greg was to make Bill jealous until he saw things her way. But tonight, she finally saw Greg for what he really was, an animal out of control. For the first time, she felt physically afraid of him. 
His actions tonight had shown her that he was a liar and couldn't be trusted. She couldn't allow him to stay. Tears born of fear and frustration trickled down her face, and she wiped them away with the tips of her fingers. She heard the bathroom door fly open. Greg stumbled into the living room, wet and naked. He pushed past her and collapsed onto the overstuffed couch. Almost instantly, he was asleep. She looked over at him. You stupid bastard, she said, incensed. That's right, sleep. This will be the last time I clean up your mess. She stared at him and then returned to the kitchen. She looked down at the puddle of urine that Greg had left on the floor. You're nothing but a goddamned animal, she swore in disgust. She got a bucket of soapy water and a mop and cleaned up the urine. When she was done, she pulled his pants from the pile of bloody clothes and took out his wallet. There was $500 inside. She put the money in her flannel shirt pocket and placed the wallet on the counter. She returned to the living room, stood over Greg with his clothes in her arms, looking down at him. You don't know what you've done. She took the clothes and returned to the stove. Holding his clothes under one arm, she used her free hand to grasp the poker, flipped the latch and opened the stove door. She used the poker to adjust the wood, stirring up the embers, making the wood burst into flames. Hunter threw his pants in first. This is for being an asshole, she said, feeling steadier now that her fear had given way to anger. His bloody shirt was next. And this is for breaking my window, you stupid bastard. His $400 goose-down coat swiftly followed. You promised me you were through with those pills. This is for breaking that promise and threatening me with that knife, she swore as she shoved the bulky green coat into the wood stove and slammed the iron door shut. There was a tinkling sound like grains of rice being dropped onto fragile crystal. The stovepipe began to tick as it rapidly expanded. It started to turn red. Suddenly there was a roaring. She could hear the flames rush up the stovepipe and into the flue. Hunter stepped back, suddenly afraid, afraid that the chimney had started to catch fire. She held her breath. After a few minutes, the roaring began to subside. She went to the kitchen and came back with his bloody boots and wallet. She threw his boots in one at a time. She held the wallet in her hand, rubbing her thumb over the soft brown leather as she stared at the wood stove's black cast iron door. She thought about the last few weeks Greg had spent with her after he'd been fired from his job at the mill. They were hard weeks, disturbing weeks. This was not what she'd signed on for. Greg Vivian wasn't the man she wanted or loved. Why was she doing this? Why was she involving herself in this charade? Why was he still in her life, in her house? In her mind's eye, she saw his face again, saw him holding that knife, saw the glimmer of the sharp blade he'd threatened her with. He was high in drugs, out of touch with reality. How long would it be before he got so high that he actually went through with it, before it ceased to be a threat, before he killed her? If not tonight, then perhaps some other night when he got totally wasted again on those damn pills. She looked down at the wallet in her hand. She opened the door to the wood stove. She decided that Greg Vivian had to go. She threw the wallet into the fire.
In our next episode, a young townswoman notices an unidentified truck parked up the road from her place night after night. Who owns the truck and what is its driver up to? The search party enters the woods and begins searching for Judith Dalton. What will they find? If you'd like to get the next free episode early, please consider becoming a Patreon member. It only costs $3 a month to join. That's less than a cup of coffee from you-know-who to enjoy access to compelling original storytelling. That's not the only benefit of being one of our Patreon members. In addition to early access to free episodes, only our Patreon members will have access to each new weekly episode of the second half of each book after the free portion of the book is over. And that's not all. Our Patreon members will also be treated to our periodic commentary, as well as having access to the entire back catalog of our episodes as our podcast goes forward. So please, click the link in the show description now if you're interested in becoming a Patreon member. Also, please note that you can follow us on Twitter at sdreadfuls. We will use Twitter to make any announcements concerning the podcast, like letting you know when the free portion of a book is about to end and when a new book will begin. We'd like to thank you for listening to Serial Dreadfuls. As always, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.